I don't, I don't know how your, your 14 or 15 year old brain maybe connected that somewhere underneath somehow or knew that somehow, but it's like you had an intuition to go for that, some industry where you could just make people smile all the time by what you were making. I used to say one thing that appealed to me about the industry, both beer and spirits, is it kind of doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you come from, um, what your job is, how much money you make. In this industry, it's just about having good product, whether it's a beer or bourbon or vodka, and just being able to sit around and socialize, chat, whether it's with an old group of friends, people you've never met before. But I, I loved that aspect of it. Is it. It didn't matter what your background was. You, you could be speaking two different languages, but you're drinking the same bourbon, so you understand each other. Welcome to the Craft Beer Travel and Adventure Podcast with Living a Stout Life. This is where we sit down with creative thinkers, on-the-road adventurers, and craft beer lovers. Your hosts, Ken and April, live, work, and travel in a 24-foot RV in search of inspiring stories around a great beer. We should go to Memphis, Tennessee. Are we recording? Yes. Now? Yes. Live? Yes. In person? Cheers. Ooh, that Live bad. at the Living a Stout Life studio at Rafe, Montana. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I just said we should go to Memphis. We should go to Memphis. We, we are going to Memphis on this podcast, although we haven't physically gone to Memphis. We haven't been there yet. Shame on us. We've been across the country. We have been to Tennessee, but somehow we just nicked the corner around Chattanooga and stuff. We never got into Memphis or Knoxville or any of those cool areas. So why are we going to Memphis? <laughs> Why go to Memphis? Oh, right now? Yeah, on the podcast. Because we're talking distilling. We're taking a little bit of a side trip away from uh, our craft beer adventures for a minute and getting into some bourbon adventures and gin, gins and different whiskeys and even a little vodka. Yeah. They were craft, crafts. It's still craft. Craft is still totally craft. So we're going to Memphis because we're going to be talking with Alex Castle. She's the master distiller at Old Dominic in Memphis. Um, but she'll tell her story. I think Kenny has a story to tell us, though. <laughs> you have, because you, you watched this. Because but no, but I didn't. know, but I want to set it up a little bit. Here. Okay, so okay, I'm going to just throw into the story. I'm going to be quiet. If Kenny would be quiet for two seconds, I'll be quiet. And then Kenny's going to tell the story. Okay. <laughs> it's a challenge. Challenge accepted. Okay. Um, yeah, so you'll hear from Alex here, and she, she talks about the importance of the people in the bourbon industry and, and not just in the industry, but around um, bourbon and drinking and, and, you know, that whole camaraderie, the community that goes with it. Well, the whole thing that you and I both love too, even with beer. So it's like that whole craft, Mm -hmm. that whole craft arena of it is just more about the community and the people. And that's what, sorry, I interrupted. No, that's okay. But that's Um, the point of it. That's what she loves about it too. Yeah. That's what she loves about it. And it's just a common thread through, pretty much all our craft adventures, like through breweries, through distilleries. And a a little story that really hits home for me is I watched a documentary on bourbon called Neat, the story of bourbon. And it's really good, a really well done documentary about bourbon and the whole like history of it and where it's at now and different things going on. It's just a really cool documentary, but it there's, there's a moment in that movie that one of the guys in the movie, he is third generation at, I think, Buffalo Trace Distillery. And so his grandfather worked there, his father worked there, and I think even his brother maybe worked there too. And uh, he worked there with his dad, and his dad was getting ready to retire. And his dad was at a point where they hit this milestone where I think it was something like they had just done their six millionth barrel of bourbon or something like that at Buffalo Trace. Six million? Six million. Damn. That's a lot of bourbon because we're, you know, a bourbon barrel's huge. I mean, that's, I think they're 50 some gallon. Don't hold me to it. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, yeah, I think it was 50 some gallons, 55 gallons. But anyway, so when they hit this milestone, you know, it was a big deal in the bourbon industry. And so... Pappy Van Winkle, for the you, those of you that know bourbon, is a pretty highly sought after bourbon, and the the owner or one of the owners from Pappy Van Winkle sent a really nice bottle of their bourbon over to 
this guy's dad to celebrate Buffalo Trace's, um, you know, their milestone. And so this guy, his dad and his brother were sitting down on the porch and sharing some of this bourbon. And he opened the, this guy that's telling the story, opened the bottle and he poured him and his dad and his brother each a drink. And then, um, he goes and he's getting ready to put the, the cork back in the bottle. And his dad goes, what are you doing? And he says, well, dad, this is, this is really special stuff. You know, this is highly, highly sought after bourbon. I was like, I figured we'd share some, have a good, have a nice drink and, you know, we'll save more for another time, another, you know, for, there's going to be more moments and stuff we can really celebrate with this. And, uh, he says, son, no, he's like, there are always going to be more barrels of good bourbon out there, more bottles of good bourbon. You don't ever, when you're with friends and family that you love, you don't ever, but you just drink it, have a good time, enjoy it, enjoy the moment. And he's like, you know what? You're right. And they sit, they sat there telling stories with each other, like for hours, I guess. And like telling each other stories of like things about their, the two brothers, like saying they told stories to their dad about him that he didn't know they knew. And then he's telling them stories about them that they didn't know he knew and all this stuff. And just the whole afternoon of this. And he says, you know, we finished that bottle that afternoon. They drank the whole bottle of this really rare bourbon. And he goes, nine months later, they were both gone. <laughs> and that story floors me every time, even when I tell it myself. I'm not a good storyteller, but, <laughs> you know, and that's what, that's really, that's very melodramatic and super dramatic, but it puts a point on it. it that is what this is all about. I mean, what the hell is good beer about or good bourbon or whatever it is you like? Wine. Your favorite dishes? Anything. Yeah, the food you like, anything. What are all these things, why are they important if they aren't being shared with somebody you give a shit about? Yeah, they don't work when they're stored away in a cabinet. No, that I special mean, moment that you're waiting for forever when that special moment could never be there because you didn't drink it or you didn't use it or you didn't cook right. it or you didn't... Share and it. we've all, well, maybe not all of us, but I know I've done that where I've like set something away and it's like, oh, we'll save it, we'll save it, we'll save it. And sometimes it is saved for a certain thing, you know, like an anniversary or the whatever. Like these guys were celebrating a milestone in their careers. You know, it was a big deal for these guys who, you know, it wasn't their business, but it felt like a family business to them the way they treated it. And so it was a big deal. But so why save it for another one, though? What's what's the next thing you got to save this bottle for? Yeah. It's like, no, enjoy that yeah. moment. Enjoy. That's what it's about. It gives you that little, you know, and that's it, what the little buzz is yeah. or whatever. The enjoyment, it just amplifies that moment. And I think when we were talking to Alex about that, um, you'll hear it in her voice, too. It's like what drew her what drew her to this industry was more about the community and the people and hence why we love her because that was what oh, drew us to amazing. the brewing industry is like, you know, you guys all know us. It's like, say hi to a stranger and, and welcome yourself into a community. And that's the same thing that drew her into the, the distilling industry. So she was such a joy to talk to and like listening She's... to her tell the history behind old Dominic and how she became a part of it um, and how they're now building today's, Future history? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. That's pretty cool. And we would not have um, hooked up with Alex if it wasn't for Malt Europe, one of our amazing partners that we work with. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, yeah, we've, we've yeah, you worked guys have, with... who have been listening to us have heard us talk about Malt Europe before. And that's because we love... we. I mean, we really count ourselves super lucky to have started working with them a couple years ago and... It's really blossomed into some, again, amazing relationships and friendships that, that it doesn't, it's not a job for us. It's not a work, a, you know, it's fun. It's all, fun. We love it. All because so. of the craft. Right. Whether that's craft distilling or craft beer or, or vaulting in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, 
we've been really lucky and we've got to meet people like Alex who, I mean, you guys will see in, in a minute when you, well, I'm not see, you'll hear, just you'll feel that passion. And that's why I wanted to tell that story too about the movie. Hopefully I didn't ruin it for he, anybody that hasn't seen the no, movie. No, but he yet, actually but it, loves that movie so much that he actually wrote a blog post about that on Living a Stout Life. So I will definitely link to that in the show notes yeah, because you'll cool. hear... You'll read the passion that you just heard from uh, Kenny. And the clip's embedded in there, too, And then the, the, movie. the clip, and then maybe you can, like, watch the movie further, and then you'll also hear yeah, that same passion this. from Alex. Oh, she totally has oh, the yeah. very similar passion, and, and that, it's people like that that really suck us in, and we're like, yeah, you know, you can't, you just can't help it. She's very, you know, has a very infectious personality, that, yeah. and, and she's an amazing person that, master distiller and she's very young especially in the distilling industry and and she's a master distiller and she's um head of the tennessee distillers guild and a few I other mean, things a lot of she's got so much going should, on she's it's great you'll you'll love shall her we story. shall we head to memphis yeah we probably should before i just start spilling the whole story out okay and steal so, alex's thunder all right. although i can't really do that because i don't have her infectious personality. you don't have her thunder i don't have her thunder no i do not we'll uh just turn it on over to alex we're here with alex castle she's the master distiller at old dominic distilling in um, memphis tennessee how are you alex i'm great great awesome. um you know just dealing with the heat in memphis as always well you um create some beverages that people can enjoy to not make it so rough (laughs) we do we do we try to help people stay cool (laughs) um can you actually tell us a little bit more about uh, old dominic distillery and maybe some of the background it's got a great story and your background as well (laughs) so old dominic um in its current uh current life uh started and really 2014, 2015, start production 2016, opened our doors in 2017. Um, and that's that's the part of the history that I have been very active in. Um, but our, our history actually goes all the way back to 1866. Uh, we were founded uh, by Domenico Canali, Italian immigrant, but had family in Memphis. Um, so he settled here and his uncle had a fruit distribution business. Um, and so Dominico worked for him, kind of learned the ropes. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, founded De Canale Company, which did fruit, just like his uncle. Um, but he decided he wanted a whiskey. Um, and of course, named it after himself, because what else do you name it? Um, so he founded Old Dominic Whiskey um, in the, the second half of the 1800s. And he basically would just buy barrels from Kentucky, um, Ohio, Indiana, anyone that had product. He'd bring them down on rail cars to Memphis where he'd blend and bottled them under the old Dominic label. Fast forward a little bit and you hit prohibition. And so old Dominic ceased to uh, be produced uh, during that time frame, And also Dominico passed away. And so when repeal happened, our brand champion was no longer with us. And so Dominic just kind of stayed, um, almost stayed dead until mm-hmm. until 2013, 2014. But our parent company, DeCanale Company, um, continued on. It's been in continuous operation since its founding. They had a beer distributorship, a food distributorship. Um, they had some timber property um, in, in West Tennessee and Arkansas, Missouri, that area. Um, so they had a ton of different business ventures. And just over the years would sell them off, start something new. And finally, in the 2000s, the fifth generation owner, so Dominico's great-great-grandson, Chris Canale Jr., um, decided he wanted to get the company back to Memphis. They'd kind of lost their Memphis roots and uh, wanted to get back to it and also wanted to set up his legacy. He was he was young um, at the time. Still, still is young, I should <laughs> clarify that. He's still young. Um but wanted to figure out what his his legacy would be. What would he leave for his children um, in the next generation of Canales? And came across, you know, they had all these old Dominic whiskey bottles, empty. Um, and someone, this is the height of the bourbon boom, and someone suggested that they actually sell the brand, sell old Dominic, because people will want that. 
And that kind of lit a little, you know, fire in him. And he realized instead of selling, what if we just bring it back? That was going to be his legacy. Um, so we built a distillery in downtown Memphis. Um, I came on board in 2015. Um, we did not have a distillery. We had a building that was very, very empty um, and got to oversee the uh, installation of the equipment um, as well as actually interior design of our front of house spaces. All of that have been, been able to be involved in all of it. And prior to coming to Old Dominic, I actually worked at Wild Turkey in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. I was there for about four years as a production supervisor. And prior to that, made laundry detergent for about a year. So <laughs> super exciting um, <laughs> career, but have been fortunate enough to be, be in this industry for, for over a decade at this point. Did you enjoy putting together like the whole insides of it, the business, the, you know, the, or was it kind of stressful and not quite your forte? You're like, I'm, I'm a distiller, not an interior designer. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, I, I came to old Dominic wanting this place to feel like mine without me having to actually put any money into it. And uh, so the fact that I actually got they gave me the privilege to be a part of every aspect of it, not just the whiskey part. Um, it makes coming to work that much more fun. I walk in and I look at the bar and it's like, well, I helped pick that bar stool. Oh, I helped pick that pink color. Um, it actually, it, it made the whole project feel much more personal to be able to be a part of every aspect of it. Did it help you in your distilling, um, being able to be a part of laying that all out so that the whole distillery operation is set up how you want it to work and does it work it, for you? It, it did. It was very, very helpful to be able to come in and, and have some say in that. But I'm also glad I was here because this place was built to be a visitor attraction. We want people to come here. We want them to see everything. And uh, so I'm glad I was here because I at least had the production mind where I was like, well, you can't do that with piping. Don't don't do funny designs on the wall with your pipes, keep them straight. Um, so that actually was good that I was there because it meant that I at least got to keep it more production oriented and less um, just pretty and <laughs> display pieces. So it was a balancing act of, of function um, versus, uh, you know, fashion, I guess. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, we kind of jumped forward a little bit because now we know, you know, the story behind the brand. And I mean, it sounds like the family is probably very well known in that area, in the Memphis area. I'm sure after, you know, a hundred and about 150 years or so now, or a little more of yep. being there. But so how did you get your start into distilling? I mean, how did Alex as a person become a distiller instead of something else in life? Yeah, um, I spent most of my childhood thinking I would be a marine biologist. I loved loved all that and would study it um, on my own. And got get to high school and take biology for the first time, and I hated it. It was the worst class I've ever taken, even to this day. Um, and so I kind of at the age of 14 had a midlife crisis because I, suddenly this thing I knew I was going to do, not doing, not even close. Um, so I discovered chemistry, discovered physics, calculus, um, and loved all of it. I, I loved all of it. And, uh, so I was talking to my mom and said, what, what can you do with these, these subjects? And she said, you can study chemical engineering. Okay. That, what do you do? Like, what does a chemical engineer do? And I, she must've been reading articles about up and coming careers and majors and things like that. Because she legitimately, the first first thing she said was, you can be a brewmaster and make beer, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. And I think she rattled off some other, other career options, and I, I stopped listening after the first two because I just thought that sounded so cool. Um, I don't know why. To this day, I still don't know why those sounded cool when I was 14 or 15 years old, um, but they did. And so that's, that was the path I set out on, um, decided to attend the University of Kentucky and studied chemical engineering there um, and was fortunate enough to get a co-op uh, when I was 20, 21. Um, 
with a company called Alltech. They're, they're based out of uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, kind of have a lot of different business ventures. Their, their main thing is animal nutrition supplements. But when I joined them, they also had a brewery um, called Kentucky Ale. And that was, that was kind of the reason I, I chose them as my co-op is I figured that would be a great, you know, super small. So I should be able to get into the brewery at some point. Well, what I didn't know is that they were actually already in the process of adding a distillery to the brewery facility. Um, and so I got to bottle beer on the, the, on Fridays. That was, that was the highlight of the week. And then when it came time, stills got delivered and they didn't have anyone to run them. Um, and I was, I was cheap labor. I, I had just finished a project. I needed another project. And so my boss asked me one day if I wanted to observe a distillation. I said, absolutely, let's do it. I get down to the brewery and distillery and he looks at me and says, well, I forgot I have to take the boys to the dentist. So I thought, crap, now I have to go back to the office. He legit ran through the entire process in about five minutes, said, you're good to go. If you panic, just shut it down. It's fine. And then he left. Oh my God. Talk about trial by fire, man. That's how he operated was trial by fire. Um, Unfortunately, the the first installation was very smooth. Um, No issues, but I, I don't think I stopped smiling once the entire day. I was on, I was in seventh heaven um, that whole time. And it was that day that I realized I didn't want to make beer. It wasn't enough for me. I, I needed to make spirits. I needed that distillation. Um, and so from that point on, I, I ran the, the distillery um, operations for, I forget how many months, um, produced and filled the first hundred, a little over a hundred barrels of what used to be called Pure Science Reserve whiskey. I think it's now under the town branch label. Um, town branch bourbon um so that's that's where i started and that was that was the end of it for me that's there was no going back (laughs) do you think he meant he he actually had uh to take his kids to the dentist or that was his way of throwing you in i think he actually did have to take his kids to the dentist because i feel like he would have come up with a different excuse if he was just testing me (laughs) (laughs) right what a brilliant way. Um, I did photography for a while and that's exactly what happened with me. I just met this guy and we, we he's like, come to a wedding with me. And yeah. here's, here's this Pentax 645 van or I don't remember Hasselblad or whatever it was, big old bulky camera. And he's like, go take some pictures. And I'm like, I don't even know how to hold this thing, <laughs> but yeah, that's the best way to do it. Learn, it is. learn by doing. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> so you, are obviously very passionate about this entire industry and have never and like not really ever looked back. So what's what's that what's the biggest thing in the industry or within the company itself that you're really just like excited about or that just gets your heart racing and you smiling the whole time like you just said? Um you know honestly it's the people. I've discovered it's the people. Um this industry is so welcoming. And not just from a production standpoint, you could just be someone who loves bourbon and we're going to welcome you into it. It's, it's so welcoming. It's so open. Um, you rarely find and, and interact with anyone in this industry who isn't passionate about it, who isn't just nerding out about it in some aspect at all times. Um, and that's contagious. And so for me, that's, you know, I love going to a, an in-store tasting and getting to meet people and, you know, they've never tried the product before and you convince them to do so. And they, they're like, oh crap, this is good. And they buy a bottle. Um, and then, you know, then they find out I'm the one that made it. And then it's a whole nother ball game. They're like, oh, we got to talk more. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's, I've discovered it's the people that really kind of, kind of drive me on the day to day. You know, I do love the production. I love, um, doing product development, coming up with new, new liquids, and then working with our creative director to come up with the labels. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of fun too, but at the end of the day, it's just being able to interact with my production team, interacting with my sales team out in the market, interacting with customers at a bar or at a store. That's, that's what keeps me going. Cool. That seems to drive a lot of the industry around both spirits and in like, and brewing as well. So 
I could, I don't, I don't know how your, your 14 or 15 year old brain maybe connected that somewhere underneath somehow or knew that somehow, but it's like you had an intuition to go for that, some industry where you could just make people smile all the time by what you were making. I used to say one thing that appealed to me about the industry, both beer and spirits, is it kind of doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you come from, um, what your job is, how much money you make. In this industry, it's just about having good product, whether it's a beer or bourbon or vodka, and just being able to sit around and socialize, chat, whether it's with an old group of friends, people you've never met before. Lord knows my husband has sat at many a bar and made friends randomly um, <laughs> over a glass of bourbon. You know, it's, it's what he does. Um, but I, I loved that aspect of it. Is it. It didn't matter what your background was. You, you could be speaking two different languages, but you're drinking the same bourbon. So you understand each other. That's cool. Have you, I, I don't, I don't want to get too much on this track, but have you, has that been, um, in bourbon, especially, or in whiskey, you know, there's a lot of tradition there and it's also been a male dominated industry for a long time. Has that been any kind of issue for you or have you noticed any differences being a woman in the industry or has it made a difference yeah. at all? You know, I've been fortunate. Um, I've been really fortunate actually to have bosses, including the one at Alltech who just threw me into the deep end, um, who didn't really, didn't seem to care that I was one young Cause that was, you know, that's definitely a roadblock too is yeah, it's male dominated. But if you think about a lot of the master distillers from Kentucky, especially 10 years ago, they were all older right. gentlemen, you know? So here I am a 21 year old trying to get into the industry and I'm female. Um, but like they never seemed, my bosses never seemed to care. They never seemed to think that that was ever an obstacle. If anything, I think they saw the age part is kind of a benefit because that meant I didn't have any bad habits they had to break. They could just train me, you know, mold me as they needed to. Um, and also when, they're, when you're young, you're willing to work really stupid hours. Um, <laughs> you know, it's we do whatever we have to do. Um, so really the only, you know, I, yeah, I've been fortunate. The most I, you know, you encounter is some people try to try to explain bourbon to you and, and think that you don't know it because you're a woman. And then you just kind of look at me like, I was born in Kentucky. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't get started on what bourbon is. All right. I know, I know my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, I've, I know a lot of women haven't had great experiences in this industry and I'm just, I'm unbelievably fortunate to, to really not have experienced any of those, those hurdles. I didn't know the hurdles existed. Well, in, in coming in young like that, do you think that, and plus you, you, you're really like, um, became a master distiller and got to lay out your own distillery basically at a very young age too. Do you think that has helped, um, maybe not put up some of the pre preconceived ideas of what bourbon has to be or what whiskey has to be or different spirits have to be? Like, cause you're very, I know we'll talk more about what types of spirits you guys make, but you're very creative with what you do in, in an industry that isn't known for being, you know, cutting edge. It's, it's really steeped on tradition. It is hundred percent. And I will say coming from Kentucky and being trained in Kentucky bourbon, um, I definitely still honor a lot of that tradition, mm -hmm. um, at least with our whiskeys. Um, but I do think coming in and being so young, yes, I, I get to see the tradition. I can honor the tradition, but I do get to see it from that outside perspective and, and try to figure out how to be more innovative while honoring the tradition. And it's just a balancing act of the two. Unfortunately, we make things other than whiskey, and that really helps give you the innovation as well because they're less traditional spirits. So how do you do that? Like, what do you do to push those, you know, push the boundaries a little bit or to be more innovative within the spirits industry? You know, a lot of it is um, like one thing that we do um, is barrel finishing, which a lot of people barrel finish, you know, their, their whiskeys now, that's a big thing. Um, but getting to partner with breweries and, and 
getting barrels back from them and finishing a very traditional bourbon in a very untraditional uh, barrel and, and creating an oatmeal raisin cookie bourbon. You know, the bourbon itself was very traditional, very, you know, we stuck to a lot, but then we, then we, we made it taste like a cookie. Um, but also I will say our mash bills, or at least our bourbon mash bill is not overly traditional as far as bourbon's concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we make it, absolutely traditional. Our aging, we don't do climate control. At, we're, I'm very traditional in the aging aspect, but it's 52% corn and 44% rye. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's a very high rye mash bill. That's not traditional in any respect. Um, and so that that's kind of a way to, to push the bounds a little bit too. You know, yes, I'm creating a bourbon. If you like bourbon, you should be able to taste this and realize it is a bourbon, but pushing the envelope a little bit with that super high rye content. Okay. Well, and you're, you kind of have a brand that surprisingly kind of uh, went against that traditional little bit in itself. Cause uh, didn't uh, old Dominic way back when, that was first around didn't wasn't there you you have you recreated a spirit that they had back then called a toddy which wasn't just your traditional bourbon like there was some fruit flavor added to that right at at that time yeah yeah so before prohibition dominico had what was called a dominic toddy um we do not have the recipe for it we have no idea what the actual recipes were but we do know it was a flavored bourbon um he had that fruit distribution. Um, and so he was able to utilize the fruit from that business and macerate it, add it to the bourbon. Um, and it, you know, was advertised for a long time as, you know, recommended by all the best doctors in Memphis. Um, so as far as we know, it's, it was one of the first toddies, if not the first toddy to ever be created and definitely to be bottled and sold in such a way. Um, and one of the bottles survived, we, we had a full bottle that was wax sealed um, when our, our owner decided to do this project. And so he cracked that bottle open and uh, had the liquid analyzed um, at a lab out in California. And we took that analysis. It was able to kind of tell us what, what most likely was in that product. And we were able to take that analysis and kind of reverse engineer it um, to the product that we have today that's called the Memphis Toddy. And it is, it's a, it's a flavored bourbon. It's cinnamon, clove, black pepper, cardamom, and some citrus peel, some sugar to give it that, you know, nice, nice sweetness. And it's low proof. It's basically cocktail in a bottle. Um, so and that one, that's drink. meant to be sipped. You know, it's not meant to be shot like a lot of the ones that are out there. We want it to fit that category, but be sippable like an actual bourbon. Did you guys drink out of that old bottle? I didn't. You didn't? Lord, that, that liquid was black. Oh. Oh, it was black because it, it had fruit in it, you know? So it it turned over 150 years. Um, but the, the owners, it's two cousins, um, Chris and Alex, they, they did actually sip it at, apparently at some point. Well, no, I wasn't, I wasn't gutsy enough. I didn't do it. <laughs> well, they're still around, so... <laughs> That's what I say. They're still alive, so it's fine. Nice. So, is this a toddy like like we think of, like most people think of as like a hot toddy, like especially when you've got a cold or something? Is a hot toddy thing? Is this meant to be heated up like that, or is it however you want to do it? It's honestly however you want to do it. It's a really surprisingly versatile product. Um, like I actually like it over ice. I think it does really well just chilled. Um, we've actually had tiki bars have embraced this product because the cardamom that's in there, I guess that's a very common tiki ingredient. So they've, they've made some really crazy cocktails with it. Uh, but then in the winter time, I love warming it up. I put it with some hot apple cider and oh. if you have a sore throat, you're, you're good to go now. Yeah. It sounds like it'd be perfect for that with the different spices and stuff that are in there. So. Absolutely. We say it's fall in a bottle or Christmas in a bottle. Like it's, it's fantastic in the wintertime. Thinking in my, in my, um, since I'm coming from like a craft brewing craft beer kind of background that, you know, it's the craft beer drinkers that 
basically own the ability to kind of uh, what's the word like uh, identify like all the flavors inside of a beer and stuff like that. But, and I'm like thinking like, you know, people who come to get spirits or something like that just want that very basic flavor. But I, I would imagine now that like the people who really know their spirits can totally identify those flavors just as much as people who know their beer. Absolutely. Um, Customers, uh, consumers are so much more educated now than ever before. And it's gotten to where, you know, they aren't just sipping bourbon on special occasions or on the weekends. They're doing this daily. So their palates are becoming more refined. They're being more, they're being exposed to more options. So it's broadening their palate and their knowledge of it to where, yeah, people, even just the, the average drinker is able to pick up on just a whole array of flavors, um, and they're, they're all figuring out what they what they like. It's no longer just like, well, that's that's what I've always consumed. No, it's well, I like I like this flavor profile, and so they find the products that fit that profile. Um, now, the the drink consumers are a lot more fun now than they used to be because of that. They're they're really really getting into everything that we're making. I think it also used to be for me thinking that it's the craft beer drinkers that got the craft or the craft breweries that got the craft distilleries going more, but it could also totally be the other way around. It's the craft distilleries that got the craft brewers going. (laughs) Well, and the thing about craft distilleries, Tennessee's a great example of it. Craft breweries were allowed. Yeah. You know, laws for beer tend to be a lot looser than laws for spirits. And so Tennessee couldn't have craft distilleries until 2009, 2010. You could only distill in three counties in the entire state. Oh, wow. And so, so the brewery scene by that point was already getting to, to be evolved. Our industry in Tennessee, as far as spirits goes, it, you know, it's 10 years old, really. If you take Jack out, take George Dickel out, we're only 10 years old. Um, so that's, that's part of why the craft distillery movement seems like it might have been a little behind the craft brewery movements because we just weren't allowed yeah but maybe it's you're also making- a lot, it's also more expensive too okay oh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> making probably uh i don't know more gains and jumps and gains quicker than maybe the breweries have who knows i don't know because you because you do have that limited time span there but it's happening quicker i i think so uh but i like to me i think the craft beer movement has helped the craft distilling movement as well, because it did expose people to crazy flavor ideas, all these different, you know, things that they just either weren't aware of, Um, you know, sour beer, who, if craft breweries didn't exist, nobody would have a sour beer, let's be honest. But that, that opened up the consumer's mind to all of these different things, and they became willing to try new things that they've never seen before. And I really do think that that helped carry over to the spirits industry. Um, they're like, well, I liked all these weird beers, so why wouldn't I like weird spirits? And it just kind of took off from there. No. Where, so on that note, then where do you see this, the future heading for distilling? Or you know, just for Old Dominic, where, what do you see coming up? Well, first off, I don't see whiskey going anywhere anytime soon. Um, You know, we always talk about different bubbles in the spirits world. You know, tequila had its heyday. I forget when vodka had its heyday and it kind of popped. If you remember all those flavored vodkas that existed, notice there's not as many out there anymore. Um, So we're definitely in a whiskey bubble, definitely a bourbon bubble, but I'm not sure this bubble's popping anytime soon. Um, I hope not. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think anyone wants it to pop at this point. Um, and so I just see whiskey still owning the market, which for, for old Dominic, that's, we want to be a whiskey brand. We just happen to make gin. We happen to make vodka, but at our core, we are a whiskey brand. So, you know, we're gearing up for 2022 when our first Tennessee whiskey will be released. Um, so that, that for us is the future, is, is finally getting our Memphis-produced whiskey on the market. But we'll continue to have some fun with it, continue with innovation. As long as consumers like it, we'll, we'll continue to put out some funky spirits. Um, 
and it, you know, I see other age spirits kind of, kind of moving alongside the whiskey. I see, you know, tequila, people are starting to actually understand you can sip tequila. Yes. You don't, you don't have to shoot it. You don't have to put it in a margarita. You can actually sip it like you do a whiskey. Uh, so I actually see other spirits starting to take, you know, starting to grow as well and just live alongside whiskey. Um, and as long as the consumer is open to that, I, I think the sky's the limit for this industry and, and what we can do and get away with. So you, you mentioned that you're about to put out your first Tennessee whiskey at, at old Dominic, but you've been around for a few years. So how, how is it, is it just the process takes that long? Yeah. So I set off to, um, to make sure that we didn't release anything under four years old. And that was really just a benchmark knowing that most whiskeys need four years to really get to a good place. Um, so I wanted to set the expectation in my owner's mind that it would be four years. And, uh, and it has, it, it, it hit four years um, back in February, 2021, but we also had to shut down for a year because I ran out of warehouse space. So to bridge that gap, we delayed our, our launch. Um, so that's part of why it took, took so long as well to release it is because we, we, we didn't produce any Tennessee whiskey for a year. Wow. Um, so yeah. But yeah, so yeah, whiskey, it's a waiting game. How do you plan for that in that in the industry? Because that's that's got to be a very tough thing to to kind of guess where the market's going to be in four years, in five years, and and I know a lot of um, more established whiskey brands. You know, they're, they're planning certain things that they want to age for ten years or or maybe longer. I it's mean, it's a guessing game, <laughs> and you hope you guess correctly. Um, Cause you could, you could miss the mark. You know, it's, we started laying down wheat whiskey five, six years ago before wheat whiskey really was a category. Well, that was a gamble. Would, would consumers even like wheat whiskey? Um, and as far as, you know, we're making as much Tennessee whiskey as, as our space would allow um, at the time. And who knows if it was enough. It, you know, we may, we may not have enough or we may have too much. Um, it, that that's been a, a challenge for the industry from day one. You know, I, there are plenty of big distilleries who overproduced at any given time. And, and that's how you end up with, you know, barrels that you can buy, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's just a guessing game and it's a stressful guessing game. That's for sure. And then you got to wait 20 years till it's rare. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then you sell it for more. Exactly. <laughs> you see that as one of like the, one of the biggest challenges like within the industry itself or within yours or are there other, you know, challenges that really? I think for us as a startup, you know, we don't have, we don't have selling history. You know, we started selling our product in 2017. That's not a long time, especially when you throw in the fact that one of those years was a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so that year, the data from that year is completely unreliable. Because on premise, no bars and restaurants were open. So those cases weren't there, but your, your retail accounts sold double what they usually do. So you can't trust any of the data from 2020. And when you're a young brand, that's, <laughs> it makes planning even harder. So for us, I do think that is probably our biggest challenge is the planning aspect of it. Um, because we, we can only move so quickly um, and it's, you know, lack of experience and lack of, lack of data. Um, whereas I'm sure the, the older distilleries, they probably don't think anything of it when it comes to planning. Like this is what we produce. This is what we produce. Um, so, you know, and really a big hurdle again for a new brand is just getting your name recognized, getting people to, when they see your bottle on the shelf, they want to buy it. They know what it is, or is it at least appealing enough to, to try it without you know without tasting it or knowing what it is uh, that's probably probably our second biggest challenge is just getting people to know who we are and okay. consumers can be so fickle sometimes too it's like they might i don't know find something that they really love and then something else different that you want to try or something comes out and then they decide oh i don't like them anymore and and, and it's just a different taste or just a different palette or flavor and yeah 
that's that's yep. got to be hard too. Like dealing with just consumers, <laughs> you love the consumers. I don't know. It's probably a love hate relationship. It is. It is. It's challenging. And we've got two products that are just very weird. We've got a honey bell citrus flavored vodka. The product itself is not weird, but the fact that we used honey bell fruit, no one knows what honey bell is, so they don't buy it because they think there's honey in the vodka. There's not. And so there's that hurdle of, of trying to, to educate them on what this product is and tell them it's not as weird as you think it is. Hey. And then same with the toddy. They, Ed- they don't know what the toddy is. Yeah, well, educate us. What is Honey Bell? Yeah, because so I- Honey Bell um, <laughs> is a fruit. It's a hybrid fruit. It's a cross between a tangerine and a grapefruit. And oh. it grows in southern Florida only about three months of the year. And for the longest time, you could only buy them through a company called Cushman's. They're the only ones that grow Honeybell and the only ones that sell it. Now, I think Harry and David may have bought Cushman's. So Harry and David is now the only company that you can buy Honeybell from. Um, but they're these basically grapefruit size tangerines. Um, and so you get the tartness of the grapefruit, but with the sweetness of the Honeybell. Um, and so for the vodka, it's just a, a nice bright citrus flavor like I said, a little sweet, a little tart. It's just kind of a nice balance of the two um, to where anything you use citrus vodka for, that's what this is, you know, great, great in. But people just see that 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 honey on the side of the bottle and they're like, I don't know. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> honey vodka? Ooh. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sounds like a vodka I would like. Yeah, that one. Because I feel like vodka went through its craft beer phase where like, there was marshmallow vodka and you know salmon vodka at one point vodka just like when we had the beers that people would throw cereal and a donut in it or something yeah and then vodka did the same thing did you say salmon so there was a distillery i think based in alaska that did a salmon flavored vodka that sounds horrible (laughs) (laughs) i don't think it lasted very long (laughs) Yeah, it was it was right at the peak of that craze where it was, you know, bacon, vodka, birthday cake, you know, all of those. And this distillery, like I'm pretty sure it was in Alaska, did a salmon vodka. I mean, I suppose if you're in Alaska, maybe kind of has to be done. Maybe not. (laughs) Or no. I don't think it had to be done at all. (laughs) The thought of drinking my salmon doesn't sound good. (laughs) No, no, that's just oh, it sounds terrible. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you cannot find a bottle of it anymore. <laughs> huh. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have a feeling if you ever found something like that on the shelf, you'd probably buy it just to be like, what is this really? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that's a fun, that's fun for how, you know, parties. Yeah. You bust it out and you're like, oh man, I you got to try this. This is so, so good. And then you oh. don't drink it. You just pour it for them. Yeah. And then yeah. watch. <laughs> put or put it as like the third drink in a flight of samples <laughs> just, <laughs> just throw it in the middle of it <laughs> yeah. no thank you <laughs> oh my gosh so you have for someone so young you've done a lot in this industry because not only are you a master distiller already at, you know at a very young age and we haven't even thrown your age out, but I can tell everybody you're not that old. So <laughs> we're, we're way older than you, <laughs> but um, you're also the president of, and I don't know if I have it right. Is it the Tennessee Distillers Guild? Yep. Okay. So how did that come about? So um, old Dominic's been a part of the guild um, since, since old Dominic started. Um which also happens to be very early on in the, the life of the guild because it hasn't been around that long either. Um, and originally my boss, the owner of the company was the, the guild representative for old Dominic. And then he just got too busy and I started going to the meetings and uh, did a trip to DC with the current president of the guild at the time. We were there to advocate for the industry, meet with all of our senators and our congressmen and women um, it was when we were fighting for the federal excise tax to be made permanent, the reduced rate. And it was on that trip, he, he finally got to know me and realized that, you know, I really love this industry and, and know how to, how to fight for it. And so he was getting ready to step down. And he asked me if I had any interest in being the president, that if so, he would push for me if people asked 
who to nominate. Um, and so when he finally sat down, it was the second half of 2020 and we did officer elections and they were all goofy enough to, to vote me president. <laughs> so, and I got reelected um, this year as well. So I'm on for, for another year. Um, and just trying to, trying to help the industry in Tennessee. So again, you're scrappy enough. And again, you're young enough to take on more tasks and spend more hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I realized in 2020, I joined, I think I ended up on three different boards. So wow. I was in the, the guild, but then I'm also a board member for the Spirit Hub Independent, Preser Independent Distillery Preservation Fund. We really need to shorten the name of that, but um, it was a, a fund founded by Spirit Hub in Illinois um, during the pandemic. And the whole goal of it is to raise money through donations um, to then give out to distilleries in need. So specifically during the pandemic, so many people couldn't afford payroll. Well, right. this could help with payroll, help with expansion, you know, different things like that. Um, so I'm on the board for it. And then I'm also on the craft advisory council for the Distilled Spirits um, Council of the United States. So, I, I, yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> so is there anything from that side of the equation, like working with lawmakers and stuff like that, that you think consumers would be really surprised about how things go and, and like maybe some of the, I don't know, limitations put on the industry or things that you really have to fight for that they're like, that a consumer would be like, really, you have to like, you have to, try to do that? That's not just a thing? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of it's state by state. Some of it is at the federal level. But like in Tennessee, we had to fight to be able to pour our own samples at in-store tastings. We weren't allowed to touch a bottle for years. We just had to stand there and talk to you. Um, whereas now, you know, we changed the law. We're now able to do it. But like in, I guess it was 2019, it was the, the really big fight and it finally got passed at the end of 2020, the federal excise tax. All we wanted was parity. We wanted to be treated the same as breweries and wineries. And if we didn't get the law changed, our t federal tax rate was gonna increase by 400%. It's gonna go up 400%, which would have decimated every craft distillery in the country. Oh yeah. Uh, and that's why we all flew. We had we had distillers from I think all fifty states fly into D.C. for the same same two days where we just stormed the hill and fought for for years to get that made permanent. Um, unfortunately, it it did. Um, but we just wanted to pay the a similar rate that the beer and and wine worlds get to pay and. It was amazing how difficult it was to get people to realize that we just wanted it to be fair. All it was, we wanted it to be fair. Why are we different than beer? Why are we different than wine? Um, and we, we have to fight that a lot, unfortunately. Oh yeah, that is crazy. Before we kind of wrap this whole thing up though, I do, I wanna thank uh, Malt Europe Malting Company because they're the ones that helped put us in contact with each other and set this up. and. And they're somebody that we've become really good friends with over the year, not, not just working with, but they become friends and stuff. But I know you know you work with uh, Rick Barney, Jr. Jr. <laughs> you're a malting company. So um, can you just talk a little bit about Malt Europe and how they've helped you guys get off the ground since you're a newer distillery? I mean, how did that kind of come about working with Malt Europe and how much have they meant to you guys as far as getting off the ground? So I've, I've been fortunate. I've worked with Malt Europe for, for 10 years now. That was who we um, got our malt from at Wild Turkey. Okay. So that relationship started, you know, a long time ago. And it was actually Rick Barney Sr. that I worked with at the time. Um, and they were just absolutely fantastic to us at Wild Turkey. Never had issues with them. And, and Rick was just fun guy. And, uh, so when it came time to go to Old Dominic and figure out where I was going to get my grain from, I, I didn't see why I would consider going anywhere else for, for our malt. Um, you know, I still stayed in touch with Rick Barney and I was like, yeah, let's do it. So they have been our malt supplier from day one. And it kind of timed perfectly because, you know, at Wild Turkey, 
you're going through so much grain, you're doing it by the truckload, you know, multiple truckloads a day. And uh, we are not anywhere near that scale at Old Dominic. Um, and, and we may never get to quite that scale, but um, they actually just started bagging malt right around the time that I needed it. Um, and so Rick was very hands-on in making sure that as things came in, there were no quality issues. Did the bags hold up? Um, and it was just great, you know, great customer service from them. And then of course his son took over, um, a lot of his work and specifically the, the craft distilling side of it. And so I've been working with junior now, um, and it's the same thing, He's, you know, constantly just making sure that the orders are, are what they're supposed to be. And I've in 10 years have never had a quality issue with any of their grain. Oh, there's gotta be something comforting knowing that the big boys like wild Turkey and, and players like that in the distilling world rely on malt Europe. And then, but it's cool that they have a commitment to smaller distilleries and smaller breweries across the country too, doing the same thing, making sure everything is just as spot on for you guys as it is for the bigger players. And that that's, what's so nice is it's like, you see it a lot where if you're a little guy, you definitely are on the back burner yeah. for some, for some vendors. And I've never once felt that with Malt Europe. I do feel like we get the exact same level of attention um, as the big guys. You know, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Well, and in the craft distilling side, it's kind of cool that there's that tradition there too. Because you said you worked with Rick Barney Sr., who, what I've heard, just being around Malt Europe for a couple of years now, I've heard that he... Re Retired and unretired several times. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't I don't know if he'll ever officially retire. <laughs> uh, I doubt he seems like the kind of guy who will never retire truly, fully. But then to have his son come in and be the guy that t- picks up where he left off is kind of cool because it's very much like the the whiskey industry and the bourbon yeah. industry in the South. It's Absolutely, a- and I think that's why the relationships are so easy with them is because there is that just common you know, common mentality, you know, it's, it's a family business. Yeah. Well, guys, I feel like we could talk forever. I can, but I, <laughs> wait, so, so I still, I think I can still ask this question. So oh, usually okay. we generally do like, like you guys, you know, we're generally craft beer people, but he's, we're totally oh, okay. falling yeah, more hook, line, sinker into the um, spirits industry as well. But I think I can still ask okay. the same question, but if you, so you, as your personality were a spirit, type like however you want to define it to yourself what spirit would you be what's your spirit what's, animal oh, what's your spirit? Spirit. <laughs> spirit in quotes <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's a that's a good question oh shoot um i would actually probably say a gin um they they tend to be complex multiple layers multiple facets um, and I think I have, I, I'm, I'm very much that way. I have my, my public facing side and then I have my work side and you know, all these different sides, um, and, and tend to come across maybe as kind of, kind of buttoned up, you know, gins for, for a certain crowd kind of thing. But the reality is, is once you taste the gin, you realize it can be fun. It can be different. It can be unique. All of these things. I guess I would, yeah, I would say gin. I like it. Cool. See, that's people, a good answer. People come up with good <laughs> answers to that question, especially when they don't know the question ahead of time. It always exactly. <laughs> it almost always surprises me the answers that I, we get yeah. from that stuff. So I like it. Well, unless you have anything else to add, I think we had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was absolutely fun. Let, let's keep doing this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, Thank Alex. Thank you. You guys have a great day. All right, you you too. too. Bye. Cheers. Dude, that was fun. She's just so easy to talk to. Well, and now you guys know what we mean by her her passion and stuff for the industry and for the people and for everything. I mean, she's super infectious. And she's got a lot going on, man, especially for somebody who uh, had a midlife crisis when she was 14 years old. I know. I love that story. She's <laughs> talking about how she knew that she probably wanted to be a marine biologist since she was young. Like, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do when I was young at all. And she had, like, this whole ideal of what she was going to do. And then she takes, like, biology in high school and is like, I hate it. <laughs> and then turns to, yeah, like, 
what was it chem- chemistry and yeah I think sciences. so yeah. and then the, I love the fact that her mom went like this she said like yeah she must have been mom. reading something because <laughs> she's like I don't know where the idea came from yeah and her mom pushed her towards brewing or distilling distilling and, and, like, and she's wow. like oh and like that was just so fun. I knew what I wanted to do when I was 14 you did not I did I wanted, wanted to be a rock beer? star. No, I wanted to be a rock star. Are you a rock star? I am not, but now I'm working on it. Are you working on being a rock star? Well, not exactly being a rock star, but I am learning how to play guitar again. <laughs> I thought I knew it. I didn't know how to play guitar in high school, but I faked it for a while because my best friend, Dennis, uh, taught me enough to know how to, so I could fake it pretty good. Taught but, you enough to know that you didn't know how to play it. Yes. And now you're... Uh, and now, now I'm more. really trying. I, yeah, I know more now after about a year of playing than than I knew. All I played it. I played at a few parties. Your birthday party one time. Yeah, when I was like seventeen. Our band played. Our band played at your birthday party, and but, we pulled it off pretty good. But but that passion. Now I can play way better. But that passion <laughs> that you're talking about now with what you want to do and you, how you want to learn mm-hmm. how to play a guitar is what we've seen mm-hmm. in Alex when she first went to school to figure out all this stuff or when she first um, was um, in quotes stuck because she was not stuck with um, yeah. distilling for the first time when her uh, boss like had to take his kids to the dentist and I remember her quote saying that she couldn't stop smiling the whole time yeah and so like and, and she totally like followed that and kept it going oh totally and, yeah and I and the other quote that she was saying that will probably always stick with me too is like it doesn't matter like what language you speak or where you come from or who you are it's just you have this common ground in this common community because you're drinking the same thing mm-hmm. like that so resonated with what we're about too with with craft brewing it's the same with craft distilling that was yeah really cool. I, th- I think that for a good portion of both craft brewing and distilling i think that resonates through those yeah. industries pretty heavily i there's exceptions, of course, you know. Oh, there's exceptions everywhere, but we don't but talk about those exceptions. We like to talk about the community and the exactly. good things. And I can't wait to see where Old Dominic goes because while they've been around, you know, since the late 1800s. In a way, yeah. But <laughs> they're also new, too, so I can't wait to see, like, what the future holds for them and the innovation that she's, um, that her and her entire team are putting forth. Well, you guys, yeah, you guys heard the different types of spirits she talked about. (gasps) And, and that, you know, I I thought it was really cool that she talked about how like a lot of the spirits they have right now are, they did because they could do some things really well and some interesting things and fun stuff while they were still getting their bourbon ready to go. You know, their first Tennessee whiskey, their first Tennessee bourbon is only going to be coming out now this year because they didn't, they didn't want to what Tennessee whiskey. Oh no. Tennessee whiskey. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. You are no Chris Stapleton and neither. No, but I'm not, but (laughs) just, you said Tennessee whiskey and that's the first song. I know. I love this song. Go ahead. So yeah, they're putting out their first actual bourbon this year, (laughs) Tennessee whiskey. And I really appreciate the way they approached it because they wanted to, you know, it took this long because they wanted to do their own spirit. They wanted to make it all original from themselves, and they did a great job of that. And that meant waiting, and that's got to be so hard that, you know, you're you're out but, there ready to go. And they were already doing a lot of cool spirits, so. But that's what part of that is. It's just that patience and that waiting. Oh, my gosh. And, and Especially in distilling. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Especially so in much. bourbon and stuff where you got – it takes time. Yeah. That's that's part of the recipe of making bourbon is Good. that you got to let, you have to wait. Good you stuff takes to. time. Yeah. It does. It does. That's, I suppose, when she was 14, that's what we think now is good stuff takes time. And now yeah. she's distilling. That's right. And now a blink of an eye later, 20 years later or whatever it is, 20 or so years, yeah. I, I'm not sure. So you can and see from the beginning... Stuff. Why we said it's time for a trip to Memphis. Oh, heck yeah. We need to get down there and get us a, uh, what was the the drink? The Memphis toddy? Oh, the Memphis. <gasps> Dude, 
It's okay. Sounds so like so weather right now when you guys are listening to this is you know it's mid it's, it's the end of August. Oh my gosh, it's the end of August. So like the that cooler weather is kind of starting to set in a little bit because I know the when nights we first are getting chilly up here in well, Montana. in Montana, I know when we first talked to Alex in the very beginning of the podcast too, she mentioned how like the Tennessee heat is still in there, mm-hmm. and it probably is in August that Tennessee heat is still there. But when you're like looking forward to those like little cooler nights and you get that 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 mm. toddy, oh, mm. That sounds great. Just just don't bring on the the salmon. Was it salmon vodka? Oh my gosh! No. Yeah, something. Yeah. No. Oh no. I'm gonna stick with the honey vodka. The honey <laughs> bell, not the honey yeah. vodka. The honey bell. Oh, the, the honey bell would be good. And their toddy. That just sounds beautiful. Actually, speaking of um, different drinks, what are you drinking? Because we've been um, inspired by a lot of these distilleries to, to to try more, and we love to do the local. The local spirits and the local beers. Yeah. So Kenny... I mean, a good friend of ours ter- started me down the track a couple years ago on like trying some bourbons and things, and I realized that I didn't hate whiskey. I realized I hated cheap think... whiskey. <laughs> so what are you drinking? I like right? good stuff. In honor of like um, whiskey, in honor of where we are in Montana currently, because we're not in Tennessee right now. No, we're nowhere near the bourbon trail in you, Kentucky either. So, yeah. uh, but up here, they it's surprising. There's good distilleries everywhere now, and up here in Montana, um, we're a little bit away from Bozeman. But Bozeman is a town here in Montana that uh, there's a a distillery called Dry Hills Distillery, and I'm actually sipping a little bit of their wheat whiskey right now, which is actually really nice. It's uh, similar to a bourbon, but it's made mostly from wheat. And uh, a little softer bite than bourbon, I'd mm-hmm. say, than most of the bourbons I've I, had. It's, I don't know if it uh, lives up to my imagination of Old Dominic's spirits because I have not – I'll have to be straight up honest with you guys. I haven't had Alex's uh, creations yet. But yet? I'm def- no, that's definitely a yet. A yet, yet. Uh, yeah, we're definitely going to be getting some of that. And hopefully that means just going straight down to Memphis and doing it in person at the distillery because that's what I'd love to do. Um, this is good, but I really have uh, you know high aspirations for uh, Old Dominic. So any of you out there that are anywhere near Memphis, you got to go check out Old Dominic and uh, hit us back with what you think because oh we really want to be there, but you got to do it for us. So go check them out. Yeah, we're clear across the country. But although we're all clear across the country from each other, um, around the world, around, baby, we okay, got people yeah, around, totally the around the world. Around the world, we are all under the same sky. But on that note, too, like what Alex said, we're all drinking the same beverage, so it doesn't matter what language we're speaking or where we are or when we are. It's all the same beverage and it's all the same community. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was a good one. <laughs> oh wait, we forgot the most important part. What should they do? It's not the most important. Well, it's not the most but important, it is important, but it is very so important. So what should they do? If you guys wait, would Wait, wait, wait. First, what? first, oh my gosh, how can we end a podcast without ever saying C A M P C A R P E D I E M dot com? Because yes, we're gonna have a lot of beer there and photography and mountain biking and friends and community. So you never know what other little beverages we might we bring can to be drinking share. the same beverage under the same sky. All together in the same place. Yeah. So check it out. URA, Colorado, October 7th through the 10th. Campcarpadium.com. And. And uh, if you like the podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, subscribe. All that good stuff. Leave us a review. Buy us a beer. All the fun stuff. It Buy helps. us a spirit. It all helps us. Yeah. Buy us, Buy a, us a spirit. Buy, Buy us a, a bottle. Yeah. Buy us a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> but no. And thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Yep. Peace out. We'd love to hear from you, so keep the conversation going. Send us a note, share a beer recommendation or two, or just say hey. This Stout Conversation has been brought to you by livingastoutlife.com, where you can find community and resources for all your craft beer travel and adventure lifestyle needs.